It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome once again in the front row. I am your host, Mike Vaccaro. Behind the scenes, as always, J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. We also remind you, this is a CLNS Media Network podcast. Go to clnsmedia.com to check out other great shows out there that you can watch and listen to as well. Also remind you, as always, to subscribe, to like, and to share if you like previous episodes or this one as well. It is episode 62, and for this one, we stick with basketball. We talk to Hall of Famer Sidney Moncrief. Moncrief grew up in Arkansas, went to Arkansas, led them to a Final Four playing for Hall of Fame coach Eddie Sutton, eventually drafted in 1979 by the Milwaukee Bucks and playing during a great era of the NBA in the 80s. They were the third best winning percentage in the 80s, Milwaukee was, behind just the Lakers and the Celtics. It led to a Hall of Fame career for Sidney Moncrief, who is doing great things now, coaching businesses and people, writing books as well. Great story, another great episode. It features NBA Hall of Famer Sidney Moncrief. Uh, Sydney, first of all, we appreciate your time here today and, and a lot to get to with you and your story, which is uh, certainly a great one on the on the basketball level. And let's start at the very beginning for you. You're, you're born in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, take us through what it was like growing up and, and where basketball was in your life early on. Basketball was non-existing, non-existent in my life early. Arkansas was uh, the way I grew up was we didn't have basketball courts. We had an open field. We we had football. We played a lot of football. Now, I'll take that back. We did have basketball courts, but nobody used them. Elementary school, very seldom would the kid play basketball. We were always in the field. We were aggressive. We liked to tackle and, be, and knock people out and get bragging rights. And uh, I think it was the sixth grade when I said, oh, God, what is a basketball court there? And then they built a basketball court at the airport in Little Rock, and they had the chain nets that went ching-ching, ching-ching. <clears throat> but I was so young, most of the older kids, they would play. I would watch somewhat. And then when we had time, I would just go and shoot some basketball. And that's when I first started playing was sixth grade, and it was just recreationally. It's continued to get better. But I love football. Even during that time, I was more of a football guy than a basketball guy. And you became a, an outstanding defender in the NBA. Is, is that that football background, that love for football, that, that aided you on the basketball court defensively? I think it aided me overall. I think most football players, when they play basketball, they have a, a little tougher mindset, just a little bit tougher than just pure basketball players. And not only defensively, just – the tenacity and the aggressiveness that I have had on the basketball court is certainly resonated from playing football and not playing organized football, just playing recreational football where everything goes pretty much. You had to have a certain amount of toughness about you if you were going to play. And that, that certainly aided me in basketball, not just on the defensive end, but overall. Yeah, that, that describes the 1980s NBA for sure, where you were a big part of. We're going to get to that in a second. But before the NBA came college, and for you it came Arkansas, why was Arkansas a good fit for you? And, and Eddie Sutton, the great Eddie Sutton, was your head coach at the time. Well, Mike, you know Arkansas has always had the reputation of being a certain 
a negative interior state. And when I would travel and people would find out I was from Arkansas, this is when I was a kid, it was always the reaction like, oh, you can't be from Arkansas. <laughs> Why? Well, you have shoes. You have one shoes. They don't wear shoes in Arkansas. <laughs> so <laughs> you would get all these comments about the state. I always want, I should say always, but I wanted to bring positive vibes to the state of Arkansas. And that's why I chose Arkansas. It was home. It was home. And I, I wanted to raise the image of the state through the game of basketball. 1975 to 1979 there at Arkansas. I mentioned uh, you know, your head coach, Eddie Sutton, but Gene Cady was a top recruiter. Was, was he the one involved in recruiting you and bringing you to Arkansas? Pat Foster was the head recruiter that recruited me. Gene Cady was an assistant coach, but Pat Foster did a lot of a lot of the recruiting. Gene Cady helped to close, Coach Sutton closed, because uh, Foster was the one that spent the most time saying, hey, this is the place for you. And I was, you know, I was convinced Arkansas was going to be it. However, LSU made a pretty strong pitch when you, when I saw their stadium, 17,000 seats. They had a practice court in the gym. And I was like, wow, this is really nice. Big campus, a lot of activity. So LSU was in the hunt. Arkansas State was in the hunt. But Ultimately, the U of A won out simply because of Coach Sutton, Coach Foster, and Ron Brewer, Marvin Death. They they had committed to go to Arkansas. They were two of the best players in the state, two of the best high school players in the state of Arkansas. In the back of my mind, I thought maybe we could do something special there. It wasn't at the forefront, but in the back of my mind, I thought, wow, this would be a good situation. Great coaching and phenomenal players. So that's why. I decided to go to Arkansas. Hey, you mentioned Marvin Delph and Ron Brewer. You guys were the triplets, right? Uh, what made you guys so good together? We've seen that maybe through the course of college basketball, three guys on a team can can make such a, a difference. But what made each of you good? Well, I think overall we all came from winning high school programs. Ron won the state. Marvin won the state. Dang it, I didn't win the state. We were overall runner-ups for the state of Arkansas in the highest classification. So we all – we were winners. We, we loved to play basketball, but we loved to win. We were very competitive. We were all 6'4". We all had a different skill set. Marvin, tremendous shooter, run fundamentally, skill-wise, one of the greatest players to come out of the state, and so was Marvin. And I was more of a hustler, slasher, aggressive, rebounder, scrappy-type basketball player. All different skill sets. So we didn't really clash. We integrated the way we played and we didn't take away from one another on the basketball court because we played so different. And the defense was certainly highlighted. Was, was that something that was hammered home as you're shaking your head by, by Eddie Sutton, the head coach, was, was that kind of his key? 24 seven, Mike, if we practiced four hours, three and a half hours, it was on defense. You know, it was like not only defense, but things that make you tougher taking charges. We had taken charge drills. We had drills to where we had to fight for the basketball on our hands and knees and grab the ball and play one-on-one -on -one and score. Uh, we had uh, line suicide drills where we had to, we only did this one time. It was really not a smart thing to do. The coaches just had a, a brain lock where they had us run suicides as opposed to touching the line. We had to dive on the line like we were diving for a basketball. Get up, sprint, dive like you're going for basketball. We did that 
like a suicide or line drill. That lasted one, <laughs> one day and that was it. But everything we did, it was done to make us mentally, physically fit and tough. Yeah, so again, you go back to your football background there. Your, your love for football kind of came into play right there uh, mm-hmm. with Eddie Sutton, the way he did things. But obviously it worked out for you guys. Uh, 1978, you go to the Final Four in St. Louis after winning the, the Southwest Conference title. What was that year like? Did you go into that year? Did Coach think this was going to be a, a big year for the Razorbacks? Coach Sutton didn't really pump us up a lot as players. But I remember we were practicing going into that year, and Coach Sutton said, Sidney, Ron, Marvin, come up to my office. And we're like, what did we do wrong? Those coaches back then, if you went to their office, yeah, you had done something wrong. They were just not going to have a chit-chat conversation with you. We sat down not knowing what he was going to say, and he said, Sid, Ron Marvin, you guys are great. You're three of the best players in the country. And you all, he went on and on for about two minutes about how good we were. And he poured into us that additional confidence that we needed to say, yeah, he might be right. We, we are pretty good players. Let's play like it consistently. And I think that started us off to having that great year. I think we only lost four games that year. We won 32 games, if I recall, and lost four games. And we were just, Mike, when you're on a roll like that, NBA or college, you're just having fun and just balling out and just winning. And that's what it's all about. That's when the game is really fun. And so we, we, we knew we were good. We were not arrogant or overconfident about how good we were. That's why we kept winning. And we just uh, ran into a bigger, stronger, more physical team in Kentucky in that Final Four. Yeah, you lose to Kentucky. They would be the eventual national champs beating uh, Duke, but still the consolation game at that time, right? So you you come back, the consolation game, you beat Notre Dame 71-69. What's it like? You you lose, so you know you're not playing for the national championship. It's a consolation game. Was it tough for you guys to get back up for that? Remember I said Ron, Marvin, Sidney, Jimmy Counts, Steve Shaw. We were all for winning programs. No, when you got on the basketball court, you had one priority, and that's to win that game. And we we played with a lot of fire, and so did, so did Notre Dame. It was highly competitive. You can tell by the score. Ron Brewer hit a last second, once that last second, a last second shot to win that ball game. But we just knew that we wanted to play our best game, and and it still meant something. It meant something to these players, to me, and particularly all the other players to to uh, to beat Notre Dame. Yeah, again, you did that, and uh, so at least you you finish on top there with a, a win in that con- consolation game. You finish as the all-time leading scorer a- as well. Uh, again, we talk about your defense, but to do that, what does that say about you and and what your game was like? Especially uh, again with Marvin and with Ron, you're the guy who's a leading scorer when your career ends. Yeah, and that was without three point line. I mind you, yeah. I always have to say that without three point line. The score was 71-69 against Notre Dame without three-point line. Uh, we scored a lot of points just playing the playing basketball the right way. But the most the stat that I'm most proud of that that has not been broken yet is I was also the leading rebounder in the history of Arkansas basketball. Now, 
if players stayed four years now, like yeah. we did, that that would be shattered. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but they they don't, and they probably won't. Uh, and that just points to my goal as a player was to be offensively good, defensively good, a good rebounder, a good teammate. Uh, when we did any drill, any running drill, I wanted to be first in every drill that we did. I just wanted to be the best. And I like the rebounding more than the scoring because it shows – because at one point I was a leading rebounder and leading scorer in history, and I'm 6'4", which is – you probably wouldn't find that in very many college programs. Yeah, rebounding isn't always about size, right? It's just about your want to to get that ball and, and to have, I guess, good positioning as well, boxing out underneath. So you took pride in, in not just the scoring, the rebounding above that as well. Yeah, rebounding is all about anticipation and just want, like you said, Mike, you, you, you have to want the basketball, but also you have to put yourself in a position to gain a rebound. You have to anticipate the shots going up. You have to anticipate where you can gain the advantage. I got a decent amount of offensive rebounds for a guard because of my quickness and my ability to leap. And that certainly helped to pad that rebounding stat somewhat. But we were a high percentage shooting team. There was there were not a lot of offensive rebounds, <laughs> you know, because we were putting the ball in the basket. But on the defensive end, it comes down to like what, what you just said. Defense is not finished until the rebound is gotten by the defense and then you start your transition game that was a big emphasis for us and every time I saw I saw the ball go up I was like I'm going to get this ball and that's one reason why I became a good rebounder for a guard as you said 6-4 so you get the rebound I'm sure you've got some quickness as well are you able to get that ball down the court quickly and again without that three-point line you're scoring a lot of points I would think because of that transition game yeah, now I wasn't Magic Johnson by a long stretch, but <laughs> but I could get the ball from end to end, or I could give it to someone and run and get in the lane. I did score a, a number of points in transition and a number of points on stealing the basketball and converting for two points. And back then, Mike, we were taught outside hand when you can test the pass on the perimeter. Now, I don't know if they're taught anything because a lot of guys go inside and it takes you away from the basket. And if you don't get the steal, you can't recuperate as quickly. But we were always taught outside hand, stay up high, keep that elbow on that player, and play that passing lane. And that allowed me not only in college, but also in the NBA to get a number of steals. I wasn't a high, high steal guy. If you had the basketball, Mike, you could probably you could probably put the ball right in my face. I, I didn't have the hands to knock it out, <laughs> out of your hand, right? But if if it, if it was a perimeter pass yeah. or a pass inside, I had the quickness to get around and, and steal the ball there. Yeah, ability to anticipate that pass. So those drills that Eddie Sutton put you through certainly paid off. And for you in 1979, the Southwest Conference Player of the Year as well. So as your, your career is winding down, obviously you've got to think the NBA is, is the next step. When were you starting to hear from you know, different teams and, and different opportunities that you would have on the next level? It was so different back then. And being from Arkansas, you didn't have the exposure. I did in college. But in general, when you were growing up, you didn't really – the NBA was so far from your mind. You watched the NBA. You watched the great Celtics teams, the Lakers, and all these tremendous basketball, Chicago Bulls, 
So you sit there and watch the games. You're like, God, these guys are really good. But you never, at least I never said, one day I'm going to be on that court. It didn't really enter my mind, which means when I get to college, you're just living in the moment. I was, living, I was playing college basketball. I did not really think about the NBA, and this is real, real talk, until after the season and Coach Sutton said, uh, Sydney, you're going to have to start looking for agents because you'll probably get drafted pretty high this year. I'm like, huh, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's when I started thinking about the NBA, not before. A little different now, right? They talk about guys going to the NBA before they even hit campus. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. The pressure on these kids has to be a lot different than it was for, for somebody like you. Yeah, in junior high school, now you're NBA ready. <laughs> it was like he or she, they're going to the next level. But for us, it was all about standing in the moment. It was pretty much, this is where you're playing. This is where you're going to play your best basketball. The next level is when you're going to start talking about the NBA. And that helped me tremendously because I never – thought I was so good mm-hmm. that I didn't have to go out every game in college and compete at a high level. And it kept me consistent. I was a very consistent player, which was one of my desired outcomes. I wanted to be consistent. But I think it's because I was so humble about my game. I just wanted to live in the moment and play my best basketball. Yeah, it seems like you came from, a, again, a humble background from Arkansas. But it, it certainly paid off for you. You get drafted fifth uh, by the Bucks in 1979. So you go on from Arkansas to Milwaukee. What were you thinking about that move at the time? Do you remember when you found out that you were drafted and who drafted you? Well, yes, I went to the encyclopedia, first of all. You don't know anything about that, Mike, you're too young. <laughs> you couldn't Google Milwaukee. You, <laughs> you couldn't say you couldn't Google Milwaukee, yeah. Wisconsin. So literally, I went to the encyclopedia, which in my family, they came out every, they were revised, I think, every 10 years. Yeah. Even mine was probably 20 years behind. And I went to Milwaukee, boop, and I started reading about the city of Milwaukee, industrial city, a lot of diversity, cold, 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 <laughs> Midwest is on Lake Michigan. And I was like, um, okay, cool. I knew it could have been Chicago, cold. It could have been New York, possibly. I didn't think so, but cold. It could have been Detroit, cold. L.A. was magic. That was warm. And Seattle was looking at me, and that was rainy and cold. So I was like, Milwaukee's okay. And I was just really, in retrospect, it was the best place for me to play basketball because Don Nelson, John Killalay, Mike Schuler, we had great assistant coaches in Milwaukee, and it was a right-sized city for me to grow in. Yeah, no Miami, no Charlotte, no Orlando at that time. So it was a lot of cold cities you're going to. And in, in Milwaukee, was it 1979 to 1989? I mean, that's a long time. You know, nowadays that doesn't exist. But to be a buck for that long, what does ten it years, mean to you to have that consistency? Ten years. Ten years. Two coaches. Dale Harris and Don Nelson, two great head coaches that helped to develop me. The city, while we were like this, they just embraced who I was, how I played, how I respected the city of Milwaukee and the fans. And it was just an intimate environment. And again, we had players, and I've been I've been really blessed my entire career. We had players that knew how to play the basketball, knew how to play basketball. We had players that were winners. 
that have been to one NCAA championships or been to the final four. So it wasn't an issue of having to get guys in the mindset of winning because they were, they were already there. We had players that were professionals. Quinn Buckner, Junior Bridgman taught me how to be a pro. Harvey Catchings, we had those type players. Marcus Johnson, and you would watch Bob Lanier. You would watch them and how they prepared for the game of, of basketball, even in the summertime. And that helped me set the tone for just keep getting better, raising my game year in and year out. But it was because of that environment created by Don Nelson. Back then, Jim Fitzgerald was the primary owner of the team. John Steinmiller was the general manager. But that environment prepared me to be the pro that I, I became. Hey, you eventually would coach as an assistant coach for a while in the NBA. Does, does that kind of environment exist now, starting with the coach and those players that, that bring the new guys under their wings? Oh, yes. Yes, it certainly – they might bring them under the wing the wrong way, like – like it was some of the teams that I didn't play for, you have to have watch who you hang out with uh, because the habits are not as strong. But I think the great teams in the NBA, which there are quite a few, I think, uh, today, they have the same mentoring system that naturally happens, organically it just happens. And those players that they're mentoring, those veterans, like this is who we are, this is our brand, we want to make sure that you keep this brand strong and that brand is all about winning, being great players, playing like a team. And that's what – I just couldn't even imagine being on a dysfunctional team and just enjoying playing basketball. So I didn't have that to deal with when I played for 10 years. You mentioned Don Nelson and Dell Harris. I would think they're two different personalities. How were they different? How were they the same to continue that culture on during your 10 years there? One thing – that was very good. They complimented one another. Dale was extremely bright, fundamentally basketball mind, did everything the right way. He could come up with defenses and offenses that could blend well. Nelly was very smarter than what people want to give him credit for. He had a he had a mind that was more innovative, thinking more out of the box. Although Dale Harris had some things that we did at Dallas when I coached with them that were totally innovative. <laughs> and, and so he had the same thing, but Nelly, could, he would do things and you were like, huh, what, huh? <laughs> you want us to do what? But he knew what the desired outcome could be. And he also knew that he could always change it. He was not afraid to take risks and chances because he knew that the card that he had in his back pocket was, if it didn't work, change it. He would run me off that UCLA cut. He posted me a lot. And back then, they were not posting guards a lot. He realized that was my strength, so he kept me on the block. He kept me inside a lot. He was a matchup coach where he took advantage of matchups. And this was before coaches were doing that at a certain level. He took Paul Presley, made him a point forward. That's where the, the term, I think, came from. Well, Dale Harris and, Dale, and Don Nelson said, we'll make him our point forward where he's a guard, we don't have point guards that we like as much, let's take the ball out of their hands, put it in his hands, you have a bigger player on him, he can make a play. So all those things I was exposed to when I was in Milwaukee as opposed to the same old, same old, same old. I didn't have that for 10 years, which helped to broaden my perspective of basketball. Who was a teammate that, that maybe made you better while you were with the Bucks? 
I think all my teammates, uh, I was always competing against me. I, I wasn't, I think Junior Bridgman, Harvey Catchings, they made me better because they were the guys I hung out with after the games or when we were on the road. And a lot of what you do in professional basketball is not what you do on the court. It's what you do off the court that's going to impact your performance. And they kept me in line where I didn't get too far out there. And that was good. But as far as just basketball, I just I just played a game. Marcus, of course, when you play, play with a great player like Marcus Johnson, uh, great players raise your the way you play because you want to be at their level. You don't want to be playing below them. You don't want guys looking at you like, man, come on now, bring it. Come on, Sydney, bring it. You're not, your game is not there. You want to be way up there when you're playing with great players. And I had that with Milwaukee. Well, 1980s, a lot of great players in the NBA at that time, a lot of great teams as well. Your biggest rivals, who was it? Sixers, Celtics, who, who are the teams as you look back at now and, and, and you – respect them, but at the same time during that time, maybe you, you saw them as certainly a, a rival. I saw everybody as a rival. I'm not, Mike, I'm just not saying that. I saw everybody, I saw every player as a rival. <clears throat> I didn't really have a play, even though I had to guard Michael Jordan for six or seven, six years maybe. I didn't get more excited about playing Michael Jordan as I did John Smith. Uh, I didn't get more excited about playing the Celtics as I did I'm trying to think of a really bad team. <laughs> I'm not going to name a bad team. <laughs> but I did not. I just played at this level, consistent level. It didn't really matter. But if you, ask, if you had to ask me which teams gave us the most trouble, certainly 76ers mm-hmm. would be in that category. And Boston Celtics would be in that category. They gave us the most trouble of any team in our conference. Yeah, during that time, you got to the Eastern Conference Finals three times, but you never advanced to that, that NBA Final as well. As you look back now, looking at the, your, your response there, is it still something that kind of sticks with you a little bit? Uh, I live in the moment. I live my best life now. I try not to think back, but I will say this, though. The best shot we had at winning the NBA title. Now, Seattle had a Tremendous team. They won the title the year they beat us. And I don't think it was a conference final game. It could have been. It could have been a conference final series. But they had, of course, uh, Dennis Johnson and uh, Fred Fred Brown, downtown Fred Brown, Jack Sigma, Lonnie Shelton, Paul Silas. I mean, they had, like, John Johnson. They had a team that – they were a team. You know what I'm talking about? Lenny Wilkins, I think, was the coach. Yep. And we lose to them. I think it was game seven in Seattle, and they go on to win the NBA title. That was a series we could have won, and the teams were fairly equal talent-wise. Mm-hmm. And we would have probably won the NBA title. The Celtics, 76ers especially, and I think 81, uh, 76er team, one of the greatest teams ever. When I reflect back, I'm thinking, no shot. Now, I didn't think that was what I was playing against them. But then you look at the roster, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame. They like four Hall of Fame players starting. Celtics, same thing. Four Hall of Fame yeah. players starting. You don't see that very much in today's game or any game. And those games, reflecting back, you're like, wow, we, we had a really tall hill to climb. And we just we were not good enough to climb that hill. 
Yeah, again, this is the 80s in the NBA, as you said. So many Hall of Famers on those teams. And you mentioned guarding Michael Jordan. Who else did you have to guard? Did you enjoy guarding during that time? Yeah, I didn't enjoy guarding anybody. <laughs> if I had it my way, I would just be a scorer and not have to guard anybody. Just sit on the weak side and just say, oh, you, you do all the hard work. But uh, just so many good offensive players. Andrew Tony. Mm-hmm. I can only say Andrew Tony and Michael because they were in the Eastern Conference and we faced them more times. Where in the West, someone like George Gervin, I'm sure, would have been way up there. But I only faced ice twice per year. And so I didn't have to battle him all the time. But those two, Andrew Tony and Michael Jordan, they were, as we would like to say, impossible to guard. Well, you had a like defense. You were the defensive player of the year twice, 1983, 1984. So what made you the defensive player of the year? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think I played tendencies well. We were a strong defensive team in Milwaukee, although they identified Coach Nelson with offense. Mm-hmm. When we were in Milwaukee, we were like team-wise, John Killalay, Del Harris, Mike Schuler, Rick Majerus, Gary St. They had set our defense to be a team defense. My responsibility was to drive or or, or influence players to their weakness and get help from, from my teammates. I was okay on the ball defender. I think the fact that I could guard a post player, I could guard a guy on the perimeter, I could guard a point guard, I could guard one, two, three, and I really, back then, you couldn't guard a four because fours back then, as you know, they were big. They were not, you know, they were like six, nine and bulky. Fives were seven footers and six elevens. But I could guard three positions pretty well. I think that helped with the uh, defensive player of the year. Do you hearken back to, to again, Eddie Sutton and Arkansas, some of the defensive minded drills that, that made you somebody that was, you know, better defensively than maybe other guys at that time? Because again, it, it was a very physical time during the eighties in the NBA as well. Yeah. And, and remember back then, most players went to college for four years. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't just get one year of that with Coach Sutton. I think I got four. And at some point, those principles are become they become habits. But it started with my high school coach, Coach Oliver Elders, where I was the top high school player and had played a game, had scored 30 points, 10 or 12 rebounds. I don't know about assists because I wasn't really all about passing the ball much. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but I had a good game. We won the game. And I'm in the gym, see Coach Elders and thought, he said, man, you played well last night. And he said, Sidney, come here. I'm going to show you something. We go sit down in his office. He had those old film. <laughs> so he put on the film, and he, he proceeded to tell me everything I was doing wrong on the defensive end. didn't say anything about offense. Look at you on the weak side. You're lazy. You don't know what's going on over there. And he went on and on. He said, son, your defense is horrible. You're going to have to start thinking about playing defense more. That gave me the awareness that, oh, yeah, I'm scoring baskets, but he's right. I'm letting my teammates down. I'm giving up points. And that's why I'm, I never totally respect guys that only score points. Or you see a great player, great player, and they'll score 
20, they'll score 35 40. And if you watch the tape, they gave up 10 to 20 points on the defensive end because they didn't guard, they didn't give support. So they only had a net score, maybe they scored 15 to 10. I didn't want to be that player and thank God for Coach Oliver Elders because he pointed to the fact I was becoming that player and I needed to change what I was doing. Do you think that defense is a little bit of a lost art in today's NBA? I was watching the game last night, and all I know is guys get to the basket really a lot, and it's uncontested. I know because I coach in the NBA, I do know they spend a tremendous amount of time on scouting reports. But I'd also know, since I coach in the NBA, guys don't really <laughs> absorb that information sometimes. You go over something over and over again about tendencies, and then you get on the court, and you're like, did we cover that three times today? <laughs> Uh, and so guys are not getting it. It's not just the coaches, but they do seem to be getting to the basket really easy. And um, that, that that points to they're so focused on the three-point shot and taking away a 30% shot, which is 30, 33%, 34% if you're okay. Yet, so they'll give up a dunk or a layup, mm-hmm. top a three-point shot getting to the basket did not come easy during your days and again you you look at you know one instance Danny Ainge that hard foul that you took exception to back in 1987 and your football instincts take over tell tell us about that moment and and what that was like as you took down Danny Ainge after a hard foul oh Danny is so competitive I I love him as a basketball player he's a person great guy Uh, but a lot of things happened before that play though Mm-hmm. Anytime you see one play that maybe turns out to be something bad that a player might do, there's probably three or four things that a player might have done that led up to that incident. And that, in that case, absolutely, <laughs> Danny picks at you. And he had done a, maybe two or three things in my mind that were a little inappropriate. And so that time, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I, I was a player, though, not just Danny, I was a player that. I didn't start very much, but I was taught younger, young when I was young, that you can't let people just bully you on the basketball court. At some point, you have to stand your ground, and you might have to get kicked out of the game for it. But you cannot have the reputation of being soft. At least I did not want that reputation of someone being able to just push you around. So, yeah, Danny and I, we kind of went at it. And the funny part about that is the Milwaukee Bucks arena, they have frames of that entire incident. <laughs> when I start going at him, the next frame, I'm going under him, next frame, I pick him up, next frame. And I was telling my teammates, I think it was Marcus Johnson retirement. I never really looked at the picture. I'm looking at the picture. I'm like, where are you guys? I'm, I'm surrounded by Boston players. There's Larry, there's Paris, there's Danny Ames. I said, all these stuff, player, I see no Bucks players. What's going on with that? <laughs> you know? So to me, that's the funny part of that picture that I'm on my own with Danny Ames with Celtics opponents all around me. 
Well, Celtics during that time were used to that, though. They were getting into it with a lot of teams at that time. And, you know, you, you look back at your Bucks days during that time, you guys had a third highest winning percentage behind the Celtics, behind the Lakers as well. I mean, you put that in perspective, you know, even without winning a championship, you guys are one of the best teams during that time frame. Do you look at back at that? Oh, I do. I do. Uh, championships are great. Every player would love to have an NBA championship. But winning is important also. If you consistently win games, then in my mind, you're a winner. You don't have to win an NBA title. And especially if you win games that you should win, and the games you maybe should win, you're still in there fighting, being competitive. And that's where we were. We were a good team, and that that matters to me. Winning matters. Winning championships certainly matters the most when you look at great players and how they're rated. But wow, what if you were on a bad team? And this happens sometimes. You're on a bad team for about five, six years. Then you go to a good team, right? And you win a championship. Does that make you a winner? <laughs> I don't know in my mind, but just if, like we did, we had the third best winning percentage during that time with the Celtics, like I said, the Lakers, us, and probably Philadelphia and those teams. Yeah. Are that means a lot to me. It really does because it showed us, it showed the consistency in how we played the game. And it, it points to that we were winners. And that, that means a lot. Yeah. Again, you mentioned Bucks included four very good teams during that time frame. So 10 years, 1988 to 89 season, you retire after that injuries started to creep up. What was it? Was it hard to step away or, or did the injuries make it uh, easier on your mind to say, this is it? Well, it was, I had knee issues in college. Some teams passed on me because they didn't think I would play two or three years in the NBA. Nellie and the Bucks took a chance on me because Nellie sent me to his guy in Boston. And the guy said, well, he probably six or seven good years. And then after that, it's questionable. My knee issue was always there. I managed the issue with good exercise. But at some point, your body does start to break down. And with the way I played, high minutes, high intensity. I didn't take off very much. and wasn't low management. You were just out there <laughs> going at it. And it did catch up. When I did retire, it was time to. It was easy. It was no regret. But after I retired, a year into it, I'm sitting there watching a couple of guys still playing in the NBA. I'm like, I can play 10 minutes with somebody. And what I didn't want to happen is to be 45 and thinking I'm going to try to come back. <laughs> so, so I did come back. I yeah. retired for a year, was ready to retire. My mind was burnt out. You, you, stop, you stop playing and you start analyzing too much. And that's when, that's when you should consider not playing basketball. I always like to say coaches coach and players play and general managers, they make decisions. When you start as a player trying to do all those different things, that means you're not totally focused on playing. And I was to that point. And so when I retired, it was a good thing. But I'm glad I came back because I felt I could still play. And my friend Harvey Ketchins once told me, he said, Sid, I'm going to I'm going to play until they have to burn this jersey off me. <laughs> he said, I'm going to be on a wheelchair there. If they can, if I can go out there on a wheelchair and play, I'm going to I'm going to play. Because once you give up that livelihood and you let someone else tell you when to retire, 
then you always have regrets about when you do retire. That's why so many players come back. And I hate when they have a great player and they say, well, it's time for that player to retire. He or she, they're hurting their legacy. You never hurt your, if you had a legacy to start with, you're not hurting your legacy. But the worst thing you can do is retire too early, in my opinion. Not, not retire, not retire too late. Retire too early. I didn't want to do that, which I did. But I came back and, and played one more year with the Atlanta Hawks, and I'm glad I did. I was a totally different player. My mind was right. I was, I was a rookie again. Think about that. I was yeah. excited about basketball again, and it was, it was a fun year. Yeah, 90-91, as you said, you one year with the Hawks. So is it, you know, a year where, hey, you, you know, you didn't take it for granted, not that you did before, but with that year away and the 10 years that you had, it just made it more enjoyable. No, you, I did take it for granted. You're right. I took it for granted. When you're at the level I played for so many years, you do take things for granted. And when I came back to play for the Hawks, I, I had always had a, a guaranteed contract. I actually uh, asked for I said, you don't have to guarantee me any money. Let me make your roster. If I make your roster, this is what you pay me. Now that was like, whew, you know, sweating bullets. Uh, but it it put some of the excitement element back into what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I had a little bit more pressure than what what I had the last two or three years. My mind was at ease, and it was a very enjoyable year to come back under those circumstances. In the end, five-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA. We mentioned the two-time Defensive Player of the Year as well. What accomplishment in your mind is the biggest or the the one that you look back at the most fondest about? I think the third best winning percentage for that decade is what I look back at the most because I've always been a winner, and it, it continued in the NBA. When I go to the Bucks. sometimes you see – you don't see a championship banner, which certainly that's in the past, but you do see – you see the records. It's like 50 wins, 50, 50, 50, 55, 60 one year, and the, the number of games we won year in, year out, the number of times we won our division year in, year out, uh, that's consistency, and that, that I'm most proud of that. 1993 Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame inductee, 1998 Wisconsin Athletic Hall of Fame inductee, 2019 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, you get inducted. What was it like? Take us through getting the call when you found out you were going into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Also the High School Hall of Fame and the College Hall of Fame. (laughs) To name name a few more. (laughs) But to, to me... If you had to say what's special, anytime you can make the high school Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. college Hall of Fame, then Naismith Hall of Fame. That's you know, that's a wrap pretty much as far as a basketball career. Because the Naismith Hall of Fame really should be about your entire basketball career, but it's not. They made it about your professional career. Because you take a player like Marcus Johnson when you look at his high school career at Crenshaw. Then he went to UCLA, his career at UCLA, where they won, I don't know, when he was there, one or two championships, maybe more. And then in Milwaukee and the Clippers, that is a total basketball career that's Hall of Fame worthy. So the Hall of Fame just looks at NBA, not the rest. So the rest for me is covered under college and then high school. And then when I got the call, 
you have years that you're you're a finalist and you don't make it. After a while, for me, I'm not saying this is for every player. For me, it was like I didn't really think about the Hall of Fame very much. People say, "Are you in the Hall of Fame? Why well, aren't you in the Hall of Fame?" I'm like, I don't know. I don't really care. And I was serious. I wasn't wasn't really that keen on it. So when I got the call, I remember I was uh, in my office at home. I get the call, and the guy told me. I said, "Only word I said is cool." I said, "Cool, cool." <laughs> and that's how I felt. Like, okay, I made it. People can stop asking me, "Are you in the Hall of Fame?" <laughs> it wasn't like I was saying, "Yeah, it's about yeah. time." I belong. I, I should be there. This is where I belong. I can't believe. It wasn't any of that. In fact, a friend of mine had to get me put in perspective for me because I called a friend of mine, a junior bridge, and I called junior. I said, hey, man, so I'm really struggling with this Hall of Fame thing. He said, what do you mean? I said, I know I should be more excited, but I'm not. So I'm not really excited. And then he went on to say, well, it's only X number of players in the history of basketball throughout the world is in the Hall of Fame, they sit Hall of Fame. And yeah, it's a pretty big honor. And I was like, okay, gives him a different perspective. I can, I can appreciate that. But at the end of the day, though, I'm glad I'm in. But to me, if you take all of the Hall of Fames and lump them all together, that's the greatest accomplishment is being in those Hall of Fames. And then when you're in other Hall of Fames that's not even related to basketball, then now you become the, the well-rounded person that I would like to be as opposed to certainly basketball is what I'm known for. And that's okay. But you also want to make a contribution in other areas. So, uh, yeah, it's been a good life, and basketball has been a big part of that. So, in other words, you didn't need that to validate your career. You, you were happy with what your career was. Hey, it's a cherry on the top, but you didn't need that, in essence, to validate who you were as a player. I didn't, but let me say this in, in all uh, transparency. It did help validate me more as a player. Okay, even in my mind, because you kind of forget what type of player you, you were mm -hmm. at some point. And then the Hall of Fame brings about those memories. Okay, uh, when I do workshops, I, that Hall of Fame clip that shows it's a minute, 53 seconds. I know exactly how long it is because I show it at just about every one of my workshops for people that don't know who I am. And I watch that film clip. I'm like, man, you were good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because when you consider how long ago it was, yeah, you don't really know that you, your life has evolved so, in so many different ways. But I, I see that film clip so much now that I'm like, man, you could get it done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, there's always a chance to, to look at yourself and see what you you did back in those days, and certainly reminisce a little bit. You know, again, a great career there. You eventually went into coaching. Uh, in college, one year at Little Rock, Arkansas, maybe the biggest impact you had, your assistant coach was Porter Mosier. Yeah, he took over after you left for the NBA after one year. He's gone on to a nice career, Loyola Chicago, currently at Oklahoma as well. I mean, you've got to be responsible for his coaching career right now. Do you still keep in touch with him and remind yeah. him about that fact? No, I called him maybe the beginning of the year, but College for me was so fun, so much fun. We didn't lose. We won like four games. 
and we built a very good foundation. Our recruiting class was one of the best recruiting classes that they had there for years. And I got a chance to impact lives on the college level like you really can't at the pro level. We gave them things, life skills. They talk about life skills in college, but we actually gave our young men life skills. We built them into better men in that one year. That's what's exciting to me about college. I knew we would win at some point. I had a great coaching staff for Mosier and uh, Dr. Clarence Finley, great coaching staff. But I needed that NBA because I left there after one year and went to the NBA and coached. And I think I had I coached in the NBA and then going to college, we would have been a lot better that first year for sure. Uh, because NBA is so much more advanced with what you're doing strategically and how you can how you can do things differently than college. And um, so I went from college to the NBA, but college was great. And Porter was a, a very good assistant coach. And I did convince or fo- I fought for him to get that position. I fought for the other coach first because I knew Finley. And I said, well, if you don't give it to – if you can't give it to him, you got to give it to and all the reasons why. So yeah, he, he was a he's done well over the years. He's done very well. And again, you've had several stops on the coaching carousel, some assistant coaches stops as well. What did you get out of that? And and you know why you're not doing it right now? Is it just kind of it's, it's such a tough profession on every level to to be a coach these days? Certainly. Well, my my the the core who I am. We have to follow our core values mm-hmm. at some point in our lives. And the core of who I am is independent, free spirit, very strong-minded. You can't be that when you're an assistant coach. <laughs> you just can't. And if you're always in conflict with what you're doing and what you would like to do and how you like to do things, then that's just not a – I'm working on – I've done 10 books. I'm working on book number 11, and it's called Living Your Best Life Now. I've kind of followed that motto, the title of this book, most of my life. And I just wasn't living my best life when I was coaching because it was too many uncontrollables that I was dealing with. And then the NBA, the, the players are great. You have some good personalities, good-hearted players. And you can't really say, oh, the players are – no, the players are good. They're good guys, and they want to be great. But all the other things that happen, uh, you, have, you don't have any control over that. And more importantly, you don't have control over your schedule. And I love having the flexibility to do what I want to do when I want to do it. So that's the reason why I do what I do now. Yeah, coaching, again, is, is a tough profession on all levels. The schedule part is certainly a big part of that. Moncrief One Team, tell us about that, what you're doing. And you, you know, you're still kind of coaching in a sense as you're talking to different folks about you know, different things that you're, you're trying to promote and, and, and help them out, be better people, be better businesses as well. Yeah, I'm doing the most important thing you could ever do, and that's help people build their lives, their careers, young people and adults. Mindproof One Team, we are a professional development company that focuses on exposure, engagement, education, and experiences and we do that in the area of team enhancement we go into companies and help build their team we go into companies and help build their leadership teams we have a leadership conference tomorrow not a conference we have a leadership workshop series tomorrow for a state agency where we're talking to these uh, adults about 
being a more effective leader with GRIT. GRIT is our big acronym, growth, resilience, intentionality, and tenacity. So we talk a lot about uh, having GRIT. Uh, we do diverse action inclusion for companies. We do workplace and career readiness and entrepreneurship for young people because we want them to understand that soft skills and emotional EQ, they matter if you want to do very well in this, our new society where you have artificial intelligence and you have emotional intelligence, you have all these things happening. How do you set yourself apart from artificial intelligence or from other people? And you do that through soft skills and emotional intelligence. So those are some things that we do for adults and for young people. And it's nothing like doing a workshop and the light goes off. And they say, I got it. It's one concept that they grasp. You know it's going to, as we say, change their life. It's going to be a game. Game Changer is our nonprofit. Monthly Game Changer is our nonprofit. And we do the same thing for young people and for adults. <clears throat> and when we... It's nothing. You're, you're changing lives. Basketball, you're not really changing someone's life. It's really just entertainment. Uh, and you're, you're giving something to people because people want to be entertained. But man, in college and basketball, you could change. You could, you were there. You could change that young person, that young man's life. NBA is a little more difficult to do that. And that's why I kind of like doing people development. Done it for 15 years and we're just still rocking along. Again, a Hall of Fame career on the court. Have you gotten more enjoyment away from the game of basketball and what you're doing now and how you're helping people? Oh, yeah. It's certainly more fulfillment. Life at some point for me is about fulfillment and what you're doing for others. And you still want to advance your life to where you live a quality life. So I'm not saying you put your life on hold to advance other people, but if you can do them together. And you know, every time that you have an encounter, we started the entrepreneurship forum for adult entrepreneurs that have small, small companies, one employees, maybe two employees. And we do this once per month as a forum and to, to give them information to change ideas, to give them things they didn't know that can help build their companies. What else is more important for me than that? And so building people is what we're all about. And we love, we love what we do and do what we love. Love what you do and do what you love. Where does that mindset come from? Again, you've had great coaches in your playing career. Does it does it come from your family and your upbringing as well? I think it's a combination of my upbringing, the combination. I was introvert, introverted person, and somewhat of a loner, and it comes from that. When you're when you're like my personality, it's like you kind of want to do your own thing as much as possible, and you want to be the best at what you do, and you want to be different. Our workshops are different because we we emphasize engagement. We use all the five modalities of learning. So it's just not sit and get. My mind couldn't take sit and get. So it's always activity. I used to do all my workshops in the gymnasium where we made it more like a basketball environment. And we had the sports principles. And now because people are older, <laughs> so they, they can't do the gym floor as much, we just move what we do around so my motivation just comes from getting better and just raising the bar. Every time I was putting together the agenda for tomorrow and I, uh, I did the chat about what is the best way to review information. So I got all these different ways you can review information. So my responsibility was to take what I had and to create an environment so they can learn, but they can learn in a different way. 
that's what's fun, just to grow an area that I that I think I'm an expert in, but just continue to grow in that area to where you become uniquely different to where people enjoy the experience. Yeah, I think we all need to continue to grow in our life, and and, and you never know where that will lead. Again, a Hall of Fame career, 2019, you're inducted. 2021, you get to give the speech for Eddie Sutton as he's inducted posthumously. What did that mean to you to speak on behalf of your head coach as he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame? Oh, that meant everything because during his last days, I would go visit him in Oklahoma City. I mean, Tulsa, Oklahoma sometimes. And of all the – I'm glad I'm in the Hall of Fame – but I wasn't like craving, like I wasn't in that mindset. But Coach Sutton, we always said he deserves it. She deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He knows it. She knows it. And everyone now Coach Sutton's in the mode where he knew that what he did had so much value. He should have been in the Hall of Fame. He knew that in his heart and spirit. And as he lost his ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. You, he still do it, and and I wish he could have been alive to experience that moment. I was watching Dusty Baker his interview with Real Sports, and he asked asked him about the Hall of Fame, and he had to come in. I probably would have had. He said, "I don't even think about." It. He said, "But if they do it, they need to do it while I'm alive." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt that Coach Sutton needed to be inducted while he was alive because he would have he would not he would not have been a Sydney like oh I don't feel excited about this I should feel excited he wouldn't be me he would just understand the moment he would understand where that put him and to be there when he was inducted for him and for the family was very special I only wish he could have been there to experience it Gene Katie just will be inducted here coming up soon as well. Again, assistant coach, when you were there at Arkansas, will that be something that you attend to see him go into the Hall of Fame? I didn't know he was going in. Yeah, he just got it uh, mentioned in the, the 2023 class. You know, when they mention the class, sometimes they mention all these people, like four or five, and they never spend a lot of time on all the other <laughs> other people. And I'm glad you told me that. <laughs> Apparently, it's a, you know, his Hall of Fame career from uh, head coach at Purdue. But again, he was a great recruiter for Eddie Sutton there at Arkansas as well. So uh, well, you guys are all going to be together in one place here soon. Not only that, remember, college basketball is really, in my mind, about building men or women. Mm-hmm. Who did a who did a better job with Coach Sutton and Gene Cady? Mm-hmm. Gene Cady was as tough as nails. But one thing you knew, that he had the heart of gold and he cared about you as a player, kind of like Rick, Rick Majera, same thing. You, you kind of knew that. And they build people. What's more important than that? Building a basketball player? No, building a person. They did. I'm glad you told me that about Coach Katie uh, because I I went with Dale Harris. Uh, and, and I was the type, shh, don't say this, but <laughs> I'm not big on these ceremonies. I was like, well, I got my Hall, Hall of Fame deal. I don't, I don't think I'm ever going back. You know. Then Coach Sutton goes in asked to present. Dale Harris goes in last year, I was asked to present back two years. Now I haven't, Katie, I won't be asked to present, but I didn't know he was, I probably will try to go now. Thanks for get, Thanks for sharing that information. Cause he's, he's my, he's my man, Coach Foster, Coach K. We talk 
Uh, I don't think he's communicating well, but I still call to check in on him. Um, when I was inducted, I called and thanked him for being a part of that. So that's good news. Now we just have to get Marcus Johnson in. There you go. He's he's the next. You can start campaigning for that. And uh, again, you, you've had a Hall of Fame career. Sounds like you're a Hall of Fame person as well. Very humble and a great speaker. Certainly, a you know the, the message is there and a great message that you have. And wish you the best of luck in all that you do. And looking forward to book number eleven coming out. Did you ever think you'd be an author of eleven books? Never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever. Never thought I would. Never thought I would. And it's so funny. You write one, and my books are really small. Then you write another one. And then every time I have an idea, a concept that I want to share, like last year I did uh, the grit factor in acts of kindness, the grit factor, just being, I was on, you got to be kinder to each other. And that's something I was big on. And then this love your best life now, I was like, wow, people need to understand the concepts of how do you live your best life right now? Not when you die and go to heaven, like some people think, you know, or later. How do you do that? And I, I finally realized that I had done that most of my life with money or not. Even when I didn't have money, I live my best life right now. And so I started saying, I started writing the book. And so I'm halfway through with this book. I do a book per year, maybe every 18 months I do a book. I don't do it. I shouldn't. Don't laugh at me. I don't do it really to make money necessarily, but I do it to share with people. Now, they pay for the books. I give away a lot of books for free in my workshops, but I just feel that I have a tool that can help people grow and get better. I should I should use it. So, yep, the book should be out. It should be out June. I have a target. I started on it. Don't laugh at me. I started on about two months ago, and I'm halfway through. I have a something coming up, a trip coming up. So by May 1st, I'm going to have the book complete. And I have it in my hand by June 1st. All right. We'll be looking out for that. Uh, certainly you have lived your and are living your best life. Uh, Sydney, thanks so much for spending some time with us here today. Thank you, Mike. Well, another great guest, great story told by the Hall of Famer, Sidney Moncrief. We appreciate his time here today. Be sure to check out his book coming out later on this summer. And we also remind you, if you watched, if you listened, subscribe to our channel. Like this episode, previous episodes, be sure to share those as well. We'll have more great guests coming your way soon. Until next time, again, I'm Mike Vaccaro in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.